Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to What Really Happened. My name is Andrew Jenks. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. Today is an interview with a person that quite literally has a story unlike anything I've ever heard. I mean, anything any of us have ever heard. The interview is with Suki Kim. Suki is a Korean-American, born and raised in South Korea until her family moved to the United States when she was 13. In 2011, Suki went undercover in North Korea, the first and only writer that we know of to do so. She did this for six months at a school called PUST, Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. PUST is a school for 270 North Korean male young men who are obviously in North Korea. They are from the upper echelon of society. We're talking the top 1% of 1%. Their parents have serious power in the country. They all live on campus in Pyongyang, what Suki describes as something that resembles more of a military compound. Now, this is important. The school is financed by evangelical Christians, missionaries, who obviously are from outside of North Korea. Although the school name has science and technology in it, the students primarily go there in terms of learning to understand English, perfect their English. And so approximately 30 evangelical teachers do just that, and only that, teach English. Now, obviously, the evangelical Christians who have built this school and pay for the students cannot talk about their religion. After all, this is North Korea. So why do the evangelicals do this? Well, they, and this group I should say in particular, do this because they believe if and when one day North Korea is a free country, the North Koreans, with the guidance of these evangelicals who are already there, will convert to becoming evangelical Christians. So Suki does two things to become a teacher at this school. First, she acts as if she's a teacher, which she isn't in regular life. I mean, she applies for the job after all. And she also acts as a evangelical, although she isn't. I don't know if she acts that way, but she's certainly purporting to be an evangelical. She gets the job, and I should say it's a non-paying job. So why does she do this? Well, to get a better understanding of North Korea. There's a few reasons that are also personal as to why she goes, but one is to get insight nobody has ever been able to get because she is undercover. She returns to America And in 2015, writes one of my favorite books of all time. It was a New York Times bestseller called Without You, There Is No Us, Undercover Among the Sons of North Korea's Elite. 
So I realize I'm asking a lot of questions that I'm just answering, but uh, I think it's important to set up this interview. Why does this matter right now? Well, for starters, we've heard a lot lately about these uh, North Korea American summits, and Suki shines a light on what those actually mean, if anything. We've heard of Otto Warmbier, the young man who went to visit North Korea, was captured, and then when he did come back to America, he was in awful condition and soon after died. But beyond the headlines, what I really want to know is what is North Korea really like? Who are the people? Do they know nothing about the outside world? Do, do we somehow have it all wrong? And that was part of Suki's mission. You'll hear her talk about how we don't really look at North Korea in any humane light because we don't really know anything about it. She also talks about how we get into a pattern of, of oftentimes simplifying this about a crazy dictator and this gulag. But as she said, inside this school of sorts where she goes, she meets these very real 19 and 20 year old young men and gets to know their feelings, desires, emotions, frustrations, sadness, and also, as she says, delightful loveliness. Throughout, and then I'll shut up, throughout, just remember that when she's talking, when Suki is talking, you really have to imagine where she is. She wrote once about this experience, saying, quote, North Korea is the most inaccessible country in the world, and its regime has committed human rights abuses at a scale, according to the United Nations, without parallel in the contemporary world. It is a society built entirely on fears. Its dictators have manipulated and exploited human frailties to incorporate them into its system of control and abuse. Its citizens cannot leave the country, and their movement within it is restricted. Information is censored, and every interaction is surveilled. Education is only about the cult of the great leader, as is the media, and the citizens are treated as slaves and soldiers to uphold the myth. Those who enter its borders without permission or who commit acts that are forbidden by the regime, even something as seemingly innocuous as ripping a poster of their great leader, can face sentences of more than a decade of hard labor. Public execution is sanctioned by the regime, which is also known for kidnapping foreigners. No one with any self of self-preservation would sneak into North Korea to write a book. Well, Suki did. This is where she was. A place in which her cohorts didn't know why she was really there. A place where the students considered her an enemy. A place, and you'll see us use this term, where there are minders, remember that word, minders, who watch Suki's every move. Almost. Here's the interview. How's the school set up, as in, well, what does the evangelical church get out of having a school in North Korea? And what does North Korea get out of this evangelical school being in, in North Korea? Well, evangelicals, um, for them, it's a long-term goal of converting North Korean citizens to Christianity, which when you think about it, it's logical sense. There's a logical sense to it since it's a very devout citizens for their great leader. So when that great leader falls, then they can um, turn their belief for Jesus. For the North Korean government, it's because the evangelicals pay. Um, they've paid for the school every step of the way. The evangelicals claim about $35 million to build and more to operate, but, you know, it's 
possible that there was a lot more money that was handed over. And paid as in giving thirty, giving the money for their top two hundred and seventy students or two hundred and seventy um, young men who have the socioeconomic status that are enable them to to go there. They're they're given the money to get that free education in that facility, or or they're also given money separately to the North Koreans, or is well, that the part that's unknown? That's the part that's unknown. Got it. Yeah. Uh, how uh, you describe it so well in your book? How would you you say actually um, in terms of just what the school looks like? And you wrote, I saw the set of buildings. Uh, this is when you're first going there, uh, July fourth, two thousand eleven. I saw the set of buildings in that isolated compound that was soon to be my refuge and prison. And then you said the first glimpse of the school. Comes with no history, no warning. The school is just a school. The students whose faces would fill that 248-acre space with meaning for me were still nowhere to be seen. Instead, I was preoccupied with the logistics of the place, who approved it and why, and who was there both to teach and be taught. While knowing so little going into it, what were your expectations or, or hope uh, when, you, when you first went there? Well, uh, a part of doing undercover work is um, not asking questions mm. in case you get stopped. So when I first went uh, back in 2002, I did a feature for the New York Review of Books and I joined pro Kim Jong-il organization in order to go my first time. Back then also, I never asked any questions. Um, so what I was hoping out of this experience was, first of all, anything that has to do with North Korea is very unlikely that it will even happen. So you pursue it because North Korea always changes their mind about everything. Um, so you just pursue the opportunity. My really goal after visiting there multiple times was the only way to write about it was to live inside among North Koreans. That was my single goal. And this opportunity was going to allow me that. That's all I was focused on at the time. Hmm. And were, were there times when, you, when you're there and you caught yourself asking a, a question and as you're asking it, you immediately thought, oh, no, I shouldn't, I kind of, I got carried away. I shouldn't have asked that even if it was a really simple question. Well, we were told very specifically to never ask anything. So um, it was very clear from the beginning that everything I was saying was being recorded and reported on by the students and the minders and also counterparts, which were the group of North Korean staff members. Um, so because we were watched uh, 24-7, literally, the minders lived downstairs from my bedroom. And their sole purpose of being there was to watch what I was doing. You know not to ask anything. But, you know, it's more the things that you drop slip when you're talking to the students. Sometimes you just want to find out what is going on. So I would um, say something that has to do with even, I guess, um, you know, where, where they live or, you know, anything that's about the outside world. You know, me saying that I went to London when I was in college as an exchange student, even something as little as that, you're not really supposed to say that because they are not allowed to travel. 
North Korean citizens are not allowed to leave the country or even leave their town without a permission. And that's something that I thought you got into the book. Uh, in the book, you, you did such a good job of is uh, the duality of, of you empathizing or, or caring for these kids and then also the realization that they're constantly, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but lying, and, and I, that comes to mind because a lot of them would often tell you, "Oh, I was, I had the opportunity to go to Singapore, I had the opportunity to go to Germany, but instead, I wanted to stay here in this, in my country, in North Korea." Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, going back and forth from really caring about these young men to also being aware of of the circumstances and their 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 hatred for for uh, people like you. Right, the hatred of people like me because I'm both South Korean and also American and those are their enemies. Mm-hmm. I think the, um, this is why a place, a topic like North Korea needed immersive journalism because it's really complicated to uh, understand it. I'm sorry, if they lie all the time, which they did, my students did, you can call that a lie or you can try to understand why they do it. And I think that living there um, very slowly, because it's not a set of people you can interview formally and get an answer, because your answers, your, the answers you end up getting will most likely not be true or scripted. So through living together, some truth gets revealed and you begin to understand why they might have to lie to survive or what they were uh, brought under so that they never learned how to actually even differentiate between truth and lies and how confusing that must have been for them mm-hmm. as a young person and what kind of hope do you have in your future if your world is just full of lies and made up of lies and encourages lies. So I think all those, uh, the, there are circumstances that the life they really live in in different layers became more real to me or clear to me. And I began to think about that more and more. It broke my heart to imagine them having to live that way. And I think that understanding is ultimately what you try to get to Mm. through, I guess, a deeper investigation. Is that something that you still grapple with? Or did you land anywhere in terms of how how you thought of them? I mean... I think that immersive journalism, in a way, you know, this is being undercover amongst them. And I, my cover was as a, a teacher, um, which I'm not in my regular life, and an evangelical uh, Christian, fundamental Christian, which I'm also not. So that sounds like I'm being disingenuous or, or uh, pretending to be something else the whole time. But actually, your real goal of why you're there is always, always at your most utmost sincerity, I guess. Sincere part of you is there as a writer trying to understand. So I think that what I was there for was to really understand and record what was happening in this nation that is really the worst gulag in the world at the moment. Um, and I think it, what really came out of that was was my empathy. Mm. I guess the deepest love for their suffering. Mm. And, and 
and seeing different layers of how this suffering is being played out in this place and what is the future for this. Mm. Because I think we don't really look at North Korea in any humane light because we don't really know anything about it. So it gets really um, simplified into the crazy dictator and the gulag and all this um, things that in a way we can just objectify and call it as the other and compartmentalize as something else. But inside is this real 19, 20-year-old young man with all your feelings and desires and emotions and frustrations and sadness and and also just delightful loveliness. And I think that um, we just can't get to it. I guess that's what I want to get so that we um, feel more for what they live in, which is unfathomable, really. Yeah. And that you certainly captured, I think. Uh, you bring up a good point. You were sort of double undercover. Uh, I, I think it'd be hard for anyone to imagine what it's like seeing as the students don't really know why their teachers are there and the teachers don't really know why you are there. Um, just in terms of the students, there, there's one student you write about in the book, and I assume there were others as well, where he started to ask questions that seemed like he knew more than he should. Um, and I think it started with this question about do people, do, do other, do dolphins have creativity and do other animals other than humans have creativity? And he seems that he's onto something and he doesn't ever, uh, he, he does, he's not really interested in small talk or the conversation that many other students oftentimes bring up. He's just very matter of fact. Uh, are, are you, would you be able to talk about that experience at all and what that was like talking to a student who, I mean, in some ways you are afforded the ability to get, leave and he's kind of really trapped for forever, potentially. I think the, um, when a student, which did happen while I was living there, where it became clear that he knew more about the outside world than he pretended to know. Because in a way, to survive in North Korea, you have to pretend or you really know nothing about the outside world except the great leader. And that's the only way to survive unless you want to end up in a gulag and also have all your family members get sent to a gulag. So I think that um, I knew the fear that they lived under, but you know, they were also still young. So I think, for example, when one student did reveal more, he wanted to know about um, more complicated things. You know, it's, it, it did begin with a discussion about animals and humans and who can think and who don't, who do not think. But then it soon went into discussions about uh, what is, uh, you know, uh, he wanted to know basically about democracy. And because I wasn't really allowed to discuss any of it, and I knew that if I talked about it there with him, then he would get in trouble. But I also knew that maybe he was setting me up. Mm -hmm. So I think the suspicion was also making me feel really nervous. And also the consequences in case he actually was really curious was even more scary because that would mean he would not be able to survive in this system. So basically either was no good. And I think that fear 
was so tremendous. I remember I couldn't really sleep at all um, that night after that discussion. And also, I couldn't really have the full discussion. I remember specifically um, talking about animals and humans. And I said to them, I don't like zoos and I never have. And they said, why, teacher? Because they love zoo. And I said, I don't. I don't want to see animals trapped. I don't see. I don't want to see anyone trapped. I want to set them all free. And I remember saying that in a way, double speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because North Koreans are not allowed to leave the country. They can never go anywhere. And I think this position of, in a way, having to double speak was the only way I could talk about anything. And hoping, in a way, some of these students would get what, what I was saying. Um And then also at the same time, hoping they don't get what I'm trying to say. Because if they do get it, then they will probably not survive here. (laughs) So I think that's a really a complicated feeling. And and it's a feeling um, that's really hard to tap into in a way, sitting here in New York, uh, in this studio. Mm. Because I think it's about life and death. It's about possibility of a gulag. All of these things seem so unreal here. But it's everyday life for a North Korean citizen. What What do you think of when you sort of picture those those students' faces? Uh, something that that would be so unfamiliar to us, in that they appear they're, they're smiling. You talk about how they're kind of excellent students in a way. They all stand when you walk in and. Um, they say that they want more homework, and uh, but then it, it it's hard not to feel just in your gut, like like really sad um, that they're they're that trapped. What comes to mind when you when you reflect back on? I mean, you really got to know these these kids on such a on in so in in quite a profound way. Because you know, it's not like. I or anyone can go to a functioning gulag and interview prisoners in North Korea. You're just not going to get given that. Um, and if, if you are, then it's going to be scripted anyway, staged. So I think the slice of life that I was able to live, um, you know, in a way infiltrated in um, or immersed or embedded in, did allow me a glimpse into what it's like being a North Korean citizen beyond defectors, because defectors usually give testimony after they flee the country mm-hmm. outside, and often they are the bottom class of the society. So it's a very different testimony you get from defectors. Oh, but this group that's inside North Korea, living within, and they're meant to be the privileged ones, and how they just had no freedom, no knowledge also, because you don't really get education that is not about the great leader, the stunted growth, also, what, contr- what, what the control of their government has done to their psychological growth, because they were so infantilized, um, abuse does that, where you are younger than your age, really, because you are never allowed to make any decisions. So I think the levels of um, what abuse has done, not for this particular time, but also generations, we forget it's three generations of this mm. cult, essentially, and a military uh, control has done for three generations for this particular group of young people was so complicated and so deep, the damage, 
I think that I really、um, felt more and more despondent as I lived there, and I think, I think that's in the book where I mean, some nights I couldn't. It just I wanted to close my eyes and go to sleep and not wake up because waking up there is just that sinking in your you know you get that sinking of what life is like there.、Uh, to kind of paint that picture, when you wake up in the morning, what are you what are you looking at? How would you articulate just what the environment what the environment is? Well, my existence there was really, you know, really a prison because I was in a faculty dormitory, which is next to their dormitory, and the campus was sort of a horseshoe shaped. So it's kind of like a circle, and、um, it's a locked compound, meaning we were not allowed out. So、um, my routine was the same every day from eight、um, a.m. Well, really six thirty a.m. with breakfast until. Until 8 p.m. with the students, but I, of course, was writing the book in secret, and because I can only write really early in the morning and really late at night, and then I erased everything off my laptop to have a copy of the book on a USB stick, which I kept on my body. So I woke up at 4 a.m. and wrote the book, but the minder was living downstairs, and he would know that. What time I got up, always. So it began with literally waking up, not turning the light on,、um, to sort of you know I did get to a point where I would turn the light on at different times, so it didn't look like I woke up at exactly same time to write my book. You get、um, one can call it paranoia, or one can call it exceptionally professional, I guess,、mm. to have to watch out for. Even a little thing like that,、right. because the consequence of that is that I had to just not raise a suspicion that I was up to something.、Mm-hmm. So I think that, and you know, at the end of the day, after a whole day with the students, I would write the book again, and I would have to then、um, go over what had happened that day, and you know. Sitting there and going back to every conversation you had throughout the day, because either I got in trouble or I got them in trouble.、Um, it's very tiring because circling the same thing over and over and over,、um, especially when the stakes are so high, when you could really literally cause death for someone, it's very.、Uh, uh, it's just it's that feeling. It's. Incredibly scary, but it's also depressing because you you just circle and circle and circle and circle. But that's what I remember about being there is the circling, and also the every day being the same. But also, my students really only learn about the great leader. You know, my job was to teach them English, but they also study their great leader studies every day for a few hours. And what great leader studies? Uh, entail is just learning the biography of the great leader, because my cover was as an evangelical. Of course, I noticed that my colleagues were,、um, you know, reading the Bible over and over and over. Because I'm not Christian, I didn't grow up reading the Bible, which I guess, in some sense, and Christians would disagree with me that it's a biography of Jesus. But there is definitely、um, them, their life just. 
was about circling the life of the great leader all day long and all their lives. So as you know, I've had some interesting experiences. There was the times I lived on the streets, the time I lived in Japan and woke up after falling from my hotel bed to the floor because there was an earthquake going on. For some who knows reason, I took the elevator down to the ground floor. In a weird way, I'm oftentimes reminded of where I've been in life by where I was sleeping at night. So that's part one. Part two is recently I've found there's this growing trend and myth that people who are tough don't ever sleep. Maybe that's true with some people, but this idea that people who are successful are up at all hours working. But Forbes magazine conducted a study. Sleep, they say, is right up there with nutrition and exercise in terms of its role in health, which makes sense. And this part is interesting. They conducted a study of 21 quote-unquote successful people. And many of these people get a really good night's rest. So Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, Ellen DeGeneres, Karen Blakett, all get between seven and eight hours of sleep a night. And what you sleep on obviously matters. And one of the companies we work on this show with that excites me the most because I don't just use but love their product is Sleep Number. The Sleep Number 360 smart beds are so smart that they actually sense me moving and automatically adjust to my body, keeping me sleeping comfortably throughout the night. It helps everyone from parents to pro athletes. I'm not a pro athlete, but I think I am. Improve their daily performance through proven quality sleep. My sleep number setting is 50. My partner's is... I need to work out my insecurities in the romantic relationship department. Sleep Number has been ranked the highest in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power. For 2018 award information, visit jdpower.com. Come in now and save up to $500 on select Sleep Number 360 smart beds. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com slash WRH, as in what really happened, sleepnumber.com slash WRH to find the one nearest you. I think it's important also to point out that you're not only the first undercover journalist to go there, but also the, uh, the only, it sounds like, I think, to this, to this point, when we talk about how little the students there know, uh, or at least seems like they know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they think that most people in the world speak Korean and or they, they think that they are uh, one of the great, they certainly think they're one of the great countries on earth. Well, I mean, one student did ask me um, or just say that, you know, the if I spoke Korean in America. And I don't think that's because they really think that. I think it's just um, they are almost conditioned to repeat things that they were told. So that's why they would say things like how, you know, a student would say he cloned a rabbit in fifth grade. And then I would ask him, did you really do it? And he said, yes. And it's because that's just what they've been told. So they repeat it. And there's so many things like that that seem so preposterous. Um, they all said, you know, that their kimchi, which is a Korean ca- um, pickled cabbage, was the official food of the Olympics in Atlanta, for example. And that's clearly not true 
but they just repeated it again and again and again. And I think some of that is just a complete uh, lie that their system put in their books about themselves. Most of it is done to uh, talk about how great North Korea is. But some other things they really didn't know would just be revealed to me in a way that was shocking. You know, they were computer majors, but they didn't know the internet. But they said that they knew it. But then they would say things like, well, teacher, how many movies can you watch on the internet? Can you watch five movies or three movies or 10 movies? You know, that question immediately tells you they don't know what the internet is. Mm. Or I had a student who, um, and again, this was a slip during, you know, when we were just talking. Because you'd have every meal with them too. I had every meals with them and I had, I play soccer with them. Mm. I picked up basketball. Um, you know, I'm not a basketball player in my real life, but there, mm. I just played it all the time, even by myself so that they would um, hang out with me. And you secretly, from what, as I recall, get, get them a basketball too, right? I brought basketballs from New York and I were always, um, like, I guess the, you know, when you're playing it by yourself, try to put it in the basket. The hoop, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it all the time just because the basketball yard was right under their dormitory. So they would see me do it. And then it became a topic that we could share. Oh, I see. So, I mean, that's obviously a journalistic uh um, method, you know, mm. one could say I'm being not genuine, but in a way I am. I mean, it's it's what I'm trying to use in order for us to have something to talk about. And um, I genuinely actually learned to like basketball um, after living in Pyongyang. You said a second ago that um, at times you, you you couldn't sleep at night and it would get really dark or depressing. What stopped you from I mean maybe for you it's kind of a no-brainer you're there to to report a story but in those dark moments what what's enabled you to keep going and not leave because it's important to remember you're not getting paid um, you are putting your life on the line and, and correct me if I'm wrong but you can pretty much get up and go uh, if you so choose so what stops you from 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 doing that? I mean, I didn't stumble upon this topic. You know, by the time I went in, there was my fifth time and I had been chasing North Korea for a decade. So being in there, um, I knew I was getting it as much as I could or anyone could, I felt, to the sort of heart of this place. So I think I just knew I had, you know, to be honest, it wasn't really like I will do it until some story breaks or, you know, it was more, it was day by day where I could barely stand it. Um, the ending came almost naturally because the great leader, Kim Jong-il, died. Then I knew that in a way that I didn't, um, I didn't need to return which I was actually invited to return for another semester, but I didn't return. Um, I think you just do. Were you ever, well, I mean, you must have been worried, but how did, did they never, uh, I don't recall this happening in the book at all, they never um, would check if you had certain items on you or pat you down or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and obviously I'm talking about you are walking around this whole time with, the uh, USB 
sticks? I always carried my laptop with me, always. And one of the mind, minders note, notes that, right? He's, he kind yes. of hints at it. He says, oh, I notice you always have this laptop right on you. And I, and yes. that, it's kind of one of those, yeah. I think my heart sank when he said that. And um, I would always um, turn it into a joke. And I would say, well, you know, I'm a very good teacher or a dedicated teacher. And the whole time I was petrified. But I knew that they go through your stuff, you know, when you're not in your room and the, your room is bugged. And I also knew that because uh, from my past visits, you know, your suitcase has definitely, you know, they've gone through stuff. Um, and also my laptop, one of the last times when I came back home, it was different. So knowing that, I think you just do your best. You know, it's not like there is actually a real book, handbook on how to keep yourself safe. I knew that I just have to carry it with me at all times because I also because they go through your things. And also I need to write things down as it happens. You know, a journalist, you have to record everything. And it's really hard in those circumstances. So sometimes I would open it and just write down quotes right then and there. But sometimes also I had a little notebook where if I couldn't access my note, my laptop, I would write down in my notebook and then I'll rip it up um, so that there's no evidence. But, you know, some it, it was just a challenge of how to record everything because I came out of there with about 400 pages notes. Oh, wow. So, and to be clear, so you're writing... Uh, when it's your laptop, you're writing on your computer, saving it to a USB, and then deleting it from the computer. Also, my document, um, I put, I started the, my notes about page 100. So up until then, it looks like a school notes. I see. So if they were to open it, it just, you know, my cover being a teacher is perfect. I had many, many documents. So on, also, I created many, 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 many school documents. This was just one of them. Mm. And I mm. had no idea if this was the way it's done, but that was what I thought was as safe as I could be. I knew um, that I shouldn't take any photos that I'm not allowed or anything like that. So right before I went in, actually, very few people knew I was going in for to do what I was doing. But a friend asked me to bring in a, a like a pin or, oh, it was like a pen that was a camera. And I said, no way. You know, like, obviously, if that's caught, yeah. then that's it, right? Like, I mean, execution would be the, um, I guess, a natural uh, punishment there for that kind of espionage, yeah. if not a lifetime gulag sentence. So anything that would give me away like that, I didn't bring any of it in. So it was just a USB stick that I had on my body. There's a part in the book where there's a journalist who who is sort of stopping by the school uh, and is on one of these I, I, correct me if I'm wrong but on one of these kind of tours that the government is is giving to show off North Korea in a way that it it really isn't and you you know him and you guys make eye contact to the point where I think the students even notice and you have to say something like um, you know kind of joking off like maybe it's a you know kind of romantic not that, not that you know him, but maybe he's a new teacher or something like that. Um, and you guys end up kind of briefly talking as he passes by your office later on. The, the point that I wanted to get to was 
He then later writes, and I thought this was just really telling, much later uh, you wrote, once we had both safely returned from North Korea, the journalist would email me this. I thought that I thought the place was horrible. It makes Gitmo, as in, as in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay, look like a destination resort. Gitmo is a prison camp for Al-Qaeda fighters and Islamic radicals, yet they had a soccer field and eat much better than those kids do. One is a university, the other is a prison camp. But good luck to any student trying to get off campus in the middle of the night. Uh, and then he, go, he goes on. Um, what, what was it like for you when you when you see this person that you know, who if he doesn't have his wits about him, can easily out you essentially? Uh, what goes through your mind? And because and, it's just so it's everything is out of your control at that point. And not at that point, everything has already been out of control, I suppose. But. I think seeing him in the cafeteria uh, by surprise was, um, it was one of the most frightening moments that I recall because I was terrified that I'd been seen uh, recognizing him and he would say something like, Hi, Suki, what are you doing here? And um, luckily he didn't do that. Um, but I think the, um, because everything is watched there, um, who else in that cafeteria, hundreds of people, the students and the minders and the staff members, um, at least one of them must have seen that we knew each other. And he was a big, big journalist. Um, As in a well-known journalist. Very well-known journalist, yeah. a very powerful one. And I think, um, and why would I know him if I also were not a, weren't a journalist there undercover? So I remember that night as the most horrifying night that I was um, certain that my cover has been blown. And what are all the things that will happen to me was very real, suddenly. And then I also realized he was only there for five days and he had no idea what was happening there. Um, I think BBC by then had also come in to cover the school and they had covered this big very fancy school with very healthy looking young men as sort of success of North Korea in some way, despite the fact it's a famine country, there was this light, for example, hope of such a well-run university. In reality, that's not what was happening there. That year was a year 100 and Kim Jong-il was dying, Kim Jong-un was rising to power and you know, all the university students, universities were shut and all university students were sent to construction field. Nobody was in school. So that is actually not what was happening. What was ha what looked like what was happening in that school was an anomaly. Um, it was uh, a propaganda tool. As in the school, just to be clear, the school that you were at was the only one in which students stayed, were still in school and not off at... at um, construction, construction fields. fields. So basically, it was a propaganda tool to spread lies. And journalists, uh, top journalists were invited in, very few, to cover the school to spread lies. And that's what North Korea does uh, expertly, where they use journalists, the media, to um, spread their lies. And I think I realized then that he was being used for this basically bogus uh, article, and he must have known. And yet he had no, really, 
there's no other way of getting to North Korea. So he took it. And how he was there not seeing anything that was happening. Couldn't. And how powerless being a journalist there is, really. And I think I was thinking about it that night. And also, because I couldn't access him to tell him, look, what you're seeing is not true, although I'm sure he guessed by then. Um, how, in a way, powerless I was. And I think being there as a journalist myself years before, and people always say that. They always say afterward, people would ask you, so did you get to talk to any North Koreans? And what are they thinking? The average North Koreans can't access the foreign journalists on these junkets because you're not allowed to talk to them. So I remember thinking how although he was in the same campus sleeping there, there was no way I could tell him what was happening there, what it must be like to be a North Korean citizen, and the world might come in and you think they can come and rescue out of this gulag. They can't. There's this invisible wall between you, the people who live in North Korea, and the outside wall world. So I think that night, um, multiple thoughts were going through in my mind. And some of it was just pure fear, but some of it was, I guess, some sort of an understanding. And th this whole time, you're, we touched on it briefly, you're, you're surrounded, your, your cohorts, your coworkers are, are people there on a, uh, on a, on a mission and uh, evangelical Christians and There's a part where you're speaking with uh, one of the one of the female teachers, who in the book uh, name is is Ruth, and uh, and she I think says to you uh, that the Lord has His ways and his and has His designs for these people, as in the North Koreans, and it was her job to wake them up to be ready for His grace. Uh, and then she continues, because Suki, this life here is temporary. There will be, they will be, as in the North Koreans, received by him in heaven. And then you bring up, uh, why, why is it then okay for North Koreans to rot in gulags, but for some reason Ruth or you or others don't have to? Um, what, what was it, how, how difficult was it uh, to be, really have no outlet? I mean, even... That the there's a profound sense of of loneliness throughout the book. I mean, even your emails are are monitored. Uh, you talk about how you wrote one email at five in the morning, and then the next day or, or a few days later, one of the one one of the minders says, "Oh, I see that you've been waking up at five a.m." And it's kind of like, well, "How did you know that?" Uh, uh, can you just talk about that that a little bit? I don't, I don't know if there was really a question in there, but just the relationship with with uh, the other teachers. Well, uh, I think that the moment you talk about where I finally revealed my anger uh, uh, with another evangelical, I mean, that was a very dangerous moment because and I... And this moment here we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, because I broke down, really, essentially. I think finally the difficulty of being there, um, which some of it, you know, I think generally I, I toned that down in the book because the focus really has to be what was happening in North Korea and the students. But 
obviously through me, the readers would see what it's like to be there. Um, and, you know, my colleagues, the evangelical colleagues, the other teachers were really my team that I went in with, but I was not one of them. So I had to really pass as being evangelical um, all that time. So I think that, that double undercover aspect really was getting to me. And because obviously I had only my mind to um, hold on to for any feeling of sanity and, and not running away with fear, which really was a big struggle. How mm-hmm. to not let fear take me over. And because if you're just terrified that you're going to be killed, essentially, um, every second is really, um, I think it, it can make you um, just desperate. So I think when she said something about how the life here isn't real, I finally broke down because obviously I'm spending all this time with my students and and I feel so close to them. In a way, they're my subjects, but my role as a teacher really was almost like I was their mother. I was everything. They were the only things, in a way, only humans I could hold on to, my subjects. So I think to call this society that I see being so inhumane as not being real because the real world uh, is in heaven. I think theoretically I understand why she felt that because of religion, but I really just confronted her about the hypocrisy of what she just said. And obviously if I were a real Christian or a real evangelical, I wouldn't be uh, questioning her that way. So I think that's when, even as I was breaking down, I realized I was risking it. And I was terrified afterward that she had figured figured it out. And the evangelicals would, I didn't think they would report me to the North Korean authorities, but they would certainly kick me out. But amazingly, Ruth thought I was maybe not as devout as her. So she judged me to be a bad Christian, luckily, but not a a journalist among them. And um, I could stay. But I remember then, and that did happen towards the end of my stay. And I think I kind of realized, I don't know if I can come back because this time I survived. But if I do it one more time Mm. where I crack, basically I cracked. Yeah. from pressure and um, it just you know it's too risky I don't know if you can get into it but do you have opinions on that you can talk about on Dr. James Kim the, the individual who started it and what his intentions are well you know I'm mixed about the existence of the school I do think that or in general what evangelicals do when you go to the Chinese border which I've done extensive reporting there uh, to interview defectors generally all the aid organizations are run by evangelicals I think they do some amazing work that other people are ignoring at the same time you know most defectors become devout Christians um, that's not surprising in a way right like right. they they it's a vulnerable population who falls into the arm of next uh, object of worship so um there's something uncomfortable about targeting such a vulnerable population for faith so uh it's a, it's a um it's not a perfect situation um what james kim is doing with that school I think that's for really more for uh, investigative journalists to look at exactly what he's doing. 
because you can't operate in North Korea that way unless you're handing money over to the regime. It just isn't um, logically a thing that you can pull off. So the question would be more, how much are they handing over to the regime? And that we don't know yet. And whenever you ask that to him, he says, it's, you know, the money comes from, the money to operate, he means the school. Money comes from Bank of Heaven. He says that they never hand over any money to the regime. Um, I personally find it not convincing. So I, I think it's a, um, it's a, it's, when you, you know, I understand engagement, how necessary it is, opening up North Korea, all about engagement, yet how much you uh, literally support that regime and aid it so that they get bigger. Um, I think it's a case by case in this one. It's a deeply uh, questionable, I think morally questionable move by the evangelicals. Um. My last question, unless there's anything else that, that you, you wanted to, to bring up, is, uh, you know, we're recording this on March 4th, 2019. Is there any, is there, what do you make of the, is there anything to be said of the future of, of North Korea? I mean, well, we're, we're in, a, I guess, an interesting time um, when it comes to North Korea. And um, with their relations with the United States and South Korea, um, I did a long feature for the New Republic recently about the real uh, purpose behind, I guess, the Singapore summit is what I covered. But, you know, Hanoi summit just happened. Mm. Um, I think that political moves that we're seeing right now, um, which is more like chess moves that doesn't really go anywhere, kind of, at the moment, is really more about the constituents of each country's involved. North Korea with Kim Jong-un and he's holding the power with his people. Moon Jae-in of South Korea and his rise to power because he became a president after the uh, impeachment of the former president. And right. his entire agenda was peace on the peninsula. That's a very different thing from either reunification or um, hu you know, humanizing North Korea or nothing like that. It's actually about... Um, not having any threats to South Korea is really his agenda. Of course, Trump has his own issue why he's using the North Korea issue to make it look like it's all been fixed, the Korean problem. I don't know if any of these things, honest, to be honest, have anything to do with the future of democracy in North Korea, which can only be had by, the, by removing that regime. You know, you can't have half like less um, of a great leader. You cannot have, you know, great leader is such an absolute thing right. that only functions if you control all your citizens. So I don't really see how it's actually logically possible to open up North Korea slowly with the great leader at its helm. The only way that can happen is to get rid of the great leader. So the version of peace that we are being fed by the media at the moment I don't think it's realistic. The great leader is is God, so you're not you're not open to a world where there's a, a lesser God or, or something of that. Yeah, you cannot have half. Uh, you can have a lukewarm fundamentalism. I think people right. forget that 
North Korea works under fundamentalism. Its military is one where all young men pretty much serve army mandatory service for 10 years. You have a place where there is absolutely really no education except on the teachings of the great leader. You have a place where the media, their only newspaper, their only television station only show the great leader. The level of a cult-like uh, way that these people have lived for 70 years is not one where you can slowly usher in democracy and have the internet and have people be free listening to K-pop. Um, in such a world, the great leader regime will be dead. First thing they'll get rid of is Kim Jong-un and his family. So that family who's at the helm right now is never going to allow this to happen. Because he has said, repeat, you know, the Qaddafi, the way Qaddafi ended up is his, his worst nightmare. So why would he risk that? So I think the version of peace that somehow we in the free world would love to fantasize and pretend that that's what's going to happen through these talks, whether it's in Han Hanoi or Singapore, just is not realistically viable. Well, Suki, the, the, I, uh, I told you I read the book in, in two days. I'm not a particularly quick reader. Um, it's beautifully written. Uh, the journalism is obviously exceptional. Uh, thank you for your work. And the, you opened my eyes in, in, in a lot of ways and clearly many others as it's a New York Times bestseller. Without you, there is no us. Um, uh, and... Um, utmost uh, appreciation and and um and thank you for for coming here to the studio and giving us your time thank you i really want to again thank suki kim for coming into the studio her book is obviously available on amazon and, and wherever you get books without you there is no us is the title i'd love to know your feedback uh, about this episode this book and interview and and everything really touched me in a certain way I'm on uh, Instagram and, and Twitter, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks. Uh, there's also a few items that's from a blog posting that, that Suki pointed to me in, after, after our interview. Uh, I don't even know if it's a blog post. It's just a, a really interesting read. Uh, she wrote it. It's about her fear while there. If you, if you want to check it out, the full thing, it's at, I created a little website for it, tinyurl.com slash Suki Fear. And here are just a few items from what she said, and then we'll be on to our, our next episode. But uh, a couple points that I thought were interesting. She said, one of the questions I'm most frequently asked about North Korea is whether the people there are, quote unquote, brainwashed under this great leader. The question strikes me as deeply patronizing. Citizens there are not simplistic robots. Again, I think the book really does a good job of speaking to this. She also added, it's of a piece with an American psychology that has allowed joking about the great leader to be our cultural norm. Movies like the animated Team America, World Police, and the comedy, The Interview, are among the most popular reference points for North Korea, a country where 25 million people, 25 million people, are currently being trapped and tortured has largely been figured into America mainstream culture as the butt of jokes. And that is all for this week's episode. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and the great Cadence 13. 